Because I, I found that whenever, um, if I happen to be playing around the cat, um, she will, I mean, she is also a relatively low energy, uh, animal, but she tends to, to chill more out, chill out more, um, whenever I, whenever I'm playing around her, which. Like, regardless of what you're playing? Uh, yes, but caveat to that, or I guess asterisks to that, um, most of what I play is relatively chill stuff anyway, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, like, you gotta, like, rock out and see what happens. Uh, okay. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 18. I checked beforehand, so it is definitely episode 18 of So Poetry. Um... I am once again speaking with someone who is not uh, in my physical vicinity, um, but I'm using a different program to record it than last time. So if there are any if there are any glitches or any technical issues, um, I apologize. I was thinking beforehand about a good analogy to make uh, for trying out new audio recordings and, or audio capturing stuff uh, before starting the podcast, and the best one that came to mind was having sex. I don't know why it just came to mind. But, um, you know, your first time having sex, is pro- it's going to be fun, but it's probably going to be a little weird and things will probably go wrong. Um, so just, just keep that in mind. Uh, but anyway, I am speaking to a dear, dear friend of mine um, that I have been relatively shit at ke- actually keeping up with uh, over the years. Uh, Ruth Diaz, who is currently Seattle, right? That's right. Um... We uh, met in undergrad, we became fast friends, uh, we did a play in a weird office-style uh, like reinterpretation of that same play, oddly enough. <laughs> um, we were hanging out together when a one of our teachers uh, leaned back and fell out of a papazon onto a staircase. Um, that's true. That I had forgotten about that. That that is one of like of all the things that I've forgotten about my time at UL. That is one of the few things that is seared into my memory. <laughs> of, it was it was you, me, and Learen, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Yep. And it was Doctor. It was Doctor Bobo, right? That's right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yep. Poor Doctor Bobo. Yeah. I still have the recording of the Midsummer thing that we did. Um, but I have been unable to do anything with it, like upload it anywhere because it is so goddamn big. Hmm. Um, and I just realized, and I've had this thing for the better part of maybe seven years. And I just realized that I could potentially just chop it in half or chop it into segments and upload them as different episodes. It's true. I also, I, I hate to make you feel old, but I think it's been a lot longer than seven years. Oh, Wait, when we did that? That was that was our junior year, right? No, that was so, our junior year. Okay, so eight eight years. That's not. It's, like, it, it's been like ten years. No. Yeah. No. Oh yeah. fuck. Or twelve? 
No, it has not been 12 years. No, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Because I've been in Baltimore for seven. So it didn't happen seven years ago. No. But <laughs> that the, seventh, the seven was the end of my senior year. So the year before that would be June, whatever. Uh, it it was a long it was a long it was a long time, time ago. ago. Uh, I was still wearing the weird newsboy hat thing that I got from my brother, um, <laughs> as like an actual fashion fashion choice. Um, yeah, wow. Anyway, um, do you <laughs> do you want to uh, talk a little about yourself? Uh, by means of introduction, so it's not just me for the first, like, seven minutes of this podcast. <laughs> sure. Um, so, like you mentioned, uh, we did meet in undergrad where I also studied English Lit. Um, and after I graduated, I took a couple of years off to figure out what I wanted to do, which turned out to be special education. Um so after I got my master's degree, I moved up to Seattle, and I've been teaching early childhood special education ever since then. Um, it doesn't have, there's not a whole lot of room, I would say, in my professional life for using the more concrete skills that I gained in my undergraduate degree. <laughs> Although, you know, I think that uh, as, as we talk some about my experience uh, in engagement with poetry, there are still times in my job where um, poetry is, is relevant and does um, have applications to my job. Um, I, um, Let's see. What else about me? I hate that the only thing I ever think to talk about is what I do for a living. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, Yeah, I'm living in the Pacific Northwest now, and so I've been making myself go outside and hike, which makes me feel poetic feelings, but I haven't written in a long time. Ah. You're you're composing internal poems. It's, it's there we cool. go. You're just you're soaking you're soaking up all of the uh, all of the experiences for that 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 uh, inevitable outpouring, that Wordsworthian outpouring of emotion and in, in writing. <laughs> there we go. So yeah, right like right now it's all like something something mountains, <laughs> something something awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. I mean, you if you could if you could fill out the something somethings, you could probably make that into a pretty uh, pretty palatable haiku. Yeah, probably so. Probably so. I find myself um, pretty speechless a lot up here, but I imagine that that's what comes before the poem. <laughs> Just the experience. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Although, um, so I um. I mean, I've I've spoken about this a lot on the podcast, but I've I've found that it's a lot it's a lot easier for me to put um, like actual emotional like the the emotions that I feel after an experience into music than mm-hmm. into writing. Yeah, um, it, I guess that's really what it for me. It's what it, it the. Uh, the emotion that I feel after the experience, I can I can channel that into writing, whereas I mean into music. Whereas, um, 
and you know with it with the hopes that it'll make whoever listens to it feel that same thing whereas with writing um and again i think i've talked about this this is very uh like haiku theory influence that i tend to write more of the experience that led to the emotions in the hopes that it will lead whoever reads it to those same emotions oh yeah that makes sense so there is yeah. a, there is a lot of like I will be out somewhere, um, like this morning I I went for a um, I went for a run, and right before my run started, like I was walking to kind of warm up a little bit, and there was a tree that I was going to use as my my sort of starting point, and I got to the tree, and I, right before I I took off, I saw a uh, I don't know some some big like boat shaped leaf that was just falling and it was doing these neat little like spins and twirls and you know uh-huh. um and it made me it definitely made me feel something I, I can't put a an actual i don't know description or name to the to the emotion that it elicited in me um but like if i if i were if i were to go that if I was going to try to capture that experience or capture that with music, then I I could very easily write what the emotion, even though I don't have a name for it, I could I could put that into music. But if I was going to write a poem, I would write about the leaf itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was able to head out to to Glacier National Park this summer Ooh. with uh, our other old college friend Amy, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think that I would have a really hard time putting into words, like, the emotion that I felt when, like, I crested one of the hills that I was climbing and saw a mountain range. <laughs> but I think that, you know, it would be a more graspable thing to talk about the journey to the top of the hill or, you know the physical sensations of hiking in a park like that. Right. And like the actual, this is what it's like to see a mountain. Right. Yeah. And then like the actual depiction of the landscape in like choosing the words that you write and the, the, um, I don't know, like the rhythms and the spacings of it to, to also evoke that sort of the like priming, priming whoever reads it for the, the sensation of like, this is, like this is the pace, and this is what I this is what it feels like to actually climb up this thing and then crest it and then see, uh, like see the 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 landscape and the mountains just kind of there waiting for yeah. you. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Would you ever want to write about that? I. I think I would. Um, I haven't written much recently, but I, I appreciate having written more in the past so that even though like, I don't necessarily think that I am in a position where I would want necessarily other people to read my work, right. I appreciate having that lens back into my own mindset from years ago mm-hmm. um, and kind of having that record in a way that's a little more visceral than a journal 
Right. First of all, I'm really bad at journaling. Yes. Uh, Same here. And then, you know, I think that it's easy for journals to kind of become, I did this, and then Mm -hmm. I did this, and then I did this. Where when I go back and read poetry that I've written, um, it's easier for me to re-inhabit those emotions and that state of mind that I was in when that poem was written. Um, And to be able to have that moment of reflection where I can juxtapose the person that I was when I wrote the poem with the person that I am now. Yes. Yeah. I would agree 100% with that. And I think... I think part of that, and I, uh, for those of you who've heard my last podcast with JP, I, I believe that this came up, that the whole idea of poetry as, not, not all poetry falls into this category, but I feel like more often than not, uh, there is a, there's a certain immediacy or, or presentness, present mm-hmm. tenseness, I don't know, one of those. Mm-hmm to poetry where it's not it's not so much a because I feel like with with journaling it's a lot of like oh, I did this so it's it's more of like it's a completed action uh whereas with poetry it at least the stuff that I'm gravitating more and more towards now um is written very much in a like I am going through this right now and as a reader you are going through this step by step with me in this particular, um, like outside of time present moment. Yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of time capsule. Yes. Uh, Yes. That is a very, yeah. I'm going to write that down. (laughs) And I, I do find that, um, on the relatively rare occasions where I, I find myself drawn to write poetry. Um, I do find that it's less, I just did something cool Mm -hmm. and I want to remember it. For some reason, I I find that it's more like I have to process this emotion that I'm going through right now, generally one that's negative. And uh, yeah, yeah, like I I find myself, um, well, and actually I'm realizing that I I, am lying about not having written poetry recently because I did just, I mean, recently being relative. Um, <laughs> but I, I, um, as you know, I recently went through a breakup and yes. weirdly my first reaction, literally first reaction to realizing that that relationship was going to end was to pull out a notebook and write a poem about it. Wow. That's... Yeah. After probably years of not writing poetry. Damn. Yeah. It wasn't a good poem, but it was a poem. Yeah. <laughs> No, I and think- I think that there's, yeah, there's something like in that moment of like, I need to, the word that comes to mind is commemorate. I don't know if that's really what I mean. Um, but like, I don't know, set this moment and be able to look back on it with some clarity of what my emotional state was in that moment so that when I reflect I'm reflecting genuinely yes and do you do you find that writing poetry for you is a way to get to a um a more like undiluted 
or maybe truer essence of your your po- or maybe like a more transparent uh, version of whatever emotion that you're feeling at the time, as yeah, opposed I, as opposed to some other writing. Do you like does it? Do you feel like it? Do you do you think that you turn to poetry because it it will like it's unadulterated that this is how you feel in mm-hmm. a, in a given moment or going through a, a given experience? Yeah, I feel like my my understanding of poetry that I've gained through the the artists that I enjoy and have been touched by mm-hmm. um, is that poetry, when I write it, it makes me shut up about, uh... like, it makes, I, I, when I write prose, which is what, you know, I tend to write more short stories and things like that when I do write, um, I have a, a tendency to really, like, linguistically get in my own way. Uh-huh. And with poetry, I feel like if I do that, then I'm just writing a short story. So if okay. I'm going to stick to the medium, then I am more able to kind of like shut up about making it sound smart or yes. like yes, yes, purple yes. Mm-hmm. and um, actually say what I mean to say, which can be very hard for me. Wow, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I'm, I, that's, I'm, I don't know, proud as a friend, proud as a poet, proud as a, a champion of poetry. That you're, that even though it's been a long time since you've since you've written a poem, that your that your first impulse upon going through like the the hardship and the the like the grief and the turmoil of the breakup was, the, like I'm I'm gonna write a poem. And it's it's funny because. Um... Like without getting into the details of of anything, yes. um, it was like two in the morning, <laughs> and so I uh, I was like barely even conscious to like make a decision about what my next move was going to be, and so you know I'm ninety eight percent still asleep yes. as I get up and find my notebook. So there was something really kind of visceral in it, and I think that's not the first time I've used that word. Um, but that, that's sort of what the act of writing poetry has been in my very amateur experience is a very visceral sort of experience. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like in those moments that like you can't, you couldn't not write that poem? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like this is something, and, and honestly for that poem in particular, I woke up and I was like, I can't go back to sleep until I finish this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like I have to write this poem and then I can maybe go to sleep. Yep. Yeah. I have, I've had not a, not a ton of experiences like that, but I've definitely had experiences where um, like I'm either on the verge of sleep or I wake up with something in my head and there's mm-hmm. that, that, you know, it's like, oh, I don't want to fucking get up and get a, grab a notebook or grab. <laughs> but then there's another part of me. It's like, shut up, go fucking write this because you know, like it's, this is prescient to whatever, some, something's, there's something here that you need to, to capture. Um, and like, do you have the, the, the feeling when that happens to you that like, do you have to do it now because you're going to lose it? Or do you have to do it now because nothing else will happen until you write it? Um, I've had, I've had both experiences. Yeah. A lot. I, I feel like, 
I think that the writing it, like, you have to write it because nothing else is going to happen until you write it. Um, I've had that experience less than the writing it because I'm, I know that I will lose it otherwise. Uh, because my, um, I think my conscious mind is generally pretty quiet and it's easy for things to kind of like to flare up and then to kind of get like damped down. Yeah. Um, so, um, it's, and I've also been recognizing that, um, my, I think my natural tendency is towards laziness. So if there's ever, if there, I've, if I'm ever presented the option to not to do something, I will probably not do that thing. Um, (laughs) and, um, no, but there, there have been, there have been a few times where I've like, I'll be like awake or I'll be working on something and like uh, lines will pop up and I know that it's like, I, like, I have to chase, I have to chase this thread because I like, there's, I just, I can't not. And it's, it's not even a, um, it feels like in those instances, it feels like it's like, I don't have a choice about this. Um, Mm. and it's not, it's not a, like, if I don't do this, I will not get anything done until this is written. It's more of a, like, I have, you know, it's like, I'm going to drop everything and go work on this right now because I have to. Um, whereas the other ones feel like more of a choice where it's like, they'll pop up and I'm presented with like, you can either go back to sleep or you can get up and write this. Um, you know, if you don't write it now, you will probably not remember any of this. So, you know, it's like, what, what it presenting myself as like, well, you know, what, what are you going to do? What's, what's more valuable to you in this moment? Sleep yeah, or, yeah. or these lines that could end up as something. Um, yeah. Which in those instances, it's handy to have a phone that will let you do um, like audio, like a voice to text stuff. Um, oh. Which actually um, about, oh geez, this is maybe... Six months ago, I don't know, sometime in the winter, um, my, um, oh, so I, I think, I think I've talked to you since then, but, um, my partner, spoilers, if you didn't, didn't know I was (laughs) seeing anyone, anyway, um, my partner got me sick, um, she had, she had the flu, and then she gave it to me, and I, like, this is probably, it was probably the first time in maybe, like, ten years that I actually had the flu, um, Oof. and I was just, I was out of commission for like three days. Um, she ended up coming over, I think it was a Friday night. Um, and we were just gross in bed together until like Sunday afternoon, essentially just asleep the entire oh. time. Um, but before she came over that night, I was just, um, just feeling terrible in bed. And I got the opening lines to like a short story, which never happens to me. Um, so huh. I, uh, I have like a little like audio recording app, um, like audio message app thing for my phone. And I would like, I hit record and I have, I think like six or seven little like files of that on my phone of me sounding like I'm on my deathbed reciting this, <laughs> this like random like short story idea into, into my phone because like, I, like I was, I guess it was like a fever dream almost that I was imagining this as I was in bed sick. Um, and I was like, I, you know, I, I can't get up and write this. 
if I just let myself escape into this into this world, I'm not going to remember it. So, like, I, I have to do something. And that was the best thing that I came up with. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, <laughs> I braved a flu or the flu for a short story that I've not done anything <laughs> with. <laughs> But it's there. It's yes. there when you're ready for yes. it. Yes, and that's and I feel like that's the thing that, like, if given if given the option of, you know, you can either write this or you can somehow capture this this feeling or chase down this thing or not. I feel like it's it. I would say maybe in like ninety five to like ninety seven percent of the time, it's best to just follow that thread. Oh yeah. Cuz you never like you never know what's going to happen to it. You never know if it's going to turn into something. Even if it doesn't, you'll still have that like either as a record of this this is the thing that you felt at this particular time that you can come back mm-hmm. and draw from or um like I I like your I like your word of the the commemoration of something. I I I see it sometimes more as like a witnessing or like a, a, yeah. a acknowledgement that's like I went through this. That this is a some sort of um like this is a like in in memorandum of or in memoriam of this thing that happened to me um but like even if it never turns into anything you still have the experience of uh like you have the the gained experience of i i used language to try to capture this thing that i felt or this thing that i went through which yeah. will inevitably help you out the next time that you have to do it because you just have some more familiarity with either like the things that you feel or the words that you can use for it or how those, um, how those things, you know, like are translated into each other. Yeah, yeah, I like the I I like the term witnessing, um, and kind of like yeah, bearing witness yes to the things that. Um, that we go through internally. Like one of the facets of my work, uh, my professional work right now is um, a lot of study about trauma and secondary trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talk a lot about bearing witness to the suffering of our, I mean, in my case, students, you know, clients for my friends who are social workers or, um, you know, medical field or whatever. Um, but I also think that we don't put enough emphasis just as people on, and this is part of that secondary trauma work, um, I'm bearing witness to our own internal lives. Yes. You know, and I, I think that for me, you know, again, as, as a very amateur, um, <laughs> it's it's a way to you know poetry for me is a way to to bear witness to my internal life yes and to have a record of it that I can then reference later in a world where I spend a lot of time having to quash mm-hmm. those emotions you know mm-hmm. I'm I spend most of my day around you know, moderate to severely disabled three and four year olds who don't need to know how I'm feeling on any given day other than, you know, modeling appropriate ways to process emotions. But, you know, like there have been multiple times 
in class where something big has happened in my life and I come in the next day and the kids just don't need to know. Right. I can do, I can say something like, oh, well, Miss D is feeling really sad today. And then, you know, model some ways like, what can we do to help me feel better? What can I do to feel better today? But the point is a lesson. The point is not right. Yeah. Sitting in that like processing it. Your, yeah. 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 Which I imagine yeah. is, I don't know, it's like, I feel like it's, it's gotta be a very weird experience to be like in a position where you have to be aware and patient and careful with like all manner of like emotional experiences and development and reactions and, mm-hmm. um, I don't, like disabilities or impairments, um, on a, like, I don't want, I don't want to use clinical as a term, but something along those lines, it's like, it's, it's much more of like a, like the, I guess the practical end of it instead of the, yeah. like, I'm, ex- like, I'm experiencing and processing this stuff for myself versus like, I'm, you know, like you said, it's like, you have to, you have to, it's all like a teachable moment and it's all like yeah. ex- external and out, like processing it on the outside of yourself instead of allowing you that sort of internal space and that that um, introspection to be like, oh, I, you know, I'm going to be, like, I'm going to be sad today, but I have to be functional and I have to be, you know, especially with, um, like, the kids that you work with, I imagine, like, much more aware and much more present all the fucking time. Yeah. And there's almost, like, a performative aspect of it as well, where, like, if I'm sad... Well, for example, um, like not to get super political, but the day after the election, I was not feeling great. Yes. Um, and I work with a lot of black and Latino and immigrants and Muslim students. Mm-hmm. So I had to really like rein myself in, but we do this thing in the morning where we check in with our emotions. And so I checked in and I said I was feeling worried. And... Then I had a bunch of kids who were also feeling worried. And I don't think that they, they, they're too young to know what had happened right. the day before. But their parents were certainly feeling some big emotions. And yes. so they were feeling some big emotions. And so we all had to just kind of talk about what it was to be worried. And, you know, like what were things that sometimes we're worried about? And how can we fix that feeling? And how can we, you know appropriately express that feeling Mm -hmm. and it yeah it was just taking you know something that you are really deeply experiencing and turning it into a lesson right um can be kind of alienating from that emotion yes yeah and so it's it's sort of the opposite process of what i've experienced when i am able to take an I keep wanting to say big feeling because that's the way that we talk about them in preschool. Uh, uh, when, you know, you take an, an emotion that you're experiencing very deeply and, and, and you're able to put it into language and um, sort of process it in in a way that can reflect it back to you rather than having to perform worried or perform sad in a way that, you know, a three-year-old with a social disability can understand. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I, I feel like, 
Um, I taking taking a little bit of a step back, um, and hopefully being able being able to connect this. I'll I'll see how how well this works out. Um, okay. I feel like within like the the larger art like across the mediums perspective or spectrum and then specifically within the literary umbrella i don't i'm mixing metaphors whatever <laughs> um at least in the united states poetry is not really uh, placed in any sort of uh high regard i would say mm-hmm. uh for the most part like people who are in it who study poetry who write poetry who read it on the regular um you know they definitely hold poetry in in a there's a there's a special place and there's a purpose for it or many purposes for it uh yeah but i would say by and large most people would look at poetry and be like eh you know it's usually it's you know like the the weird sort of like the the kind of oh, um, I cannot think, I can think of an image, but I can't think of the actual descriptive word for it. It's like the, the put down sort of when you call someone sensitive, mm, um, mm. that, you know, it's like, oh, they're writing poetry. It's like, oh, they're, yeah. they're in contact with these, you know, like emotions, but in a way that's like not, not good or not healthy or not like robust. I don't know. Um, yeah. Like wimpy, maybe almost, or so, I don't know. It's like there's there's this very particular image that I have in my head that I'm not that I'm. It's difficult for me to actually expound upon. But anyway, um, and I I feel like for a lot of people, poetry is kind of sneered at and uh, you know uh, judged on the whole. What's the point? You know, like what what the hell would I ever do with poetry? Yeah, and I think. That, at least for me, poetry is one of the best ways for, um, like, empathy to be generated. Because, at at least for a lot of the poets that I read, it's a lot of, like, first-person stuff. Um, Like, Mary Oliver is, you know, like, she's... Mary Oliver and Charles Wright are at the very top of my my poetic pantheon. Um, And they are very much... You know, at least Oliver is very much, you know, it's like, I'm going to go on a walk. I'm going to write about the stuff that I experienced on a walk. I'm going to write in such a way that you feel like you're walking this this way with me. Um, you know, walking on in the morning with me and seeing these things. And I, like, kind of hearkening back to what we were talking about before that, um, that, like you said, that poetry for you is, is a very transparent or very undiluted emotion it's like it really gets to the kind of it's like this is what i actually feel that there's not there's not all this fluff or not all of this ornamentation of language or all this cleverness or all this other thing it's really just like this is as best as i can put it and as bluntly as i can put it this is this is how i feel um and i think that like the the work that you're doing with the kids with the the sort of like checking in with yourself and even like even for for writing like your own poetry and like going back and rereading it. There's like, I feel like that's, that that's, it's a, it's a similar experience of like maybe not checking in with yourself in the moment, but checking in with like 
emotionally where you were. Um, yeah. And yeah. there's, I've, I've not encountered a whole lot of better ways, um, to like, to allow you to kind of like step back. Like I, I have a Mac, um, and to back up, I use time machine and it, you know, it's like, it brings you to, for those of you who don't do, don't use Mac and don't use time machine. When you enter it, um, you bring you to this, this, um, I don't know, like this screen that has every previous time that you've backed up your computer and you can go and click on that thing and it will give you like your, essentially your hard drive in that moment. Um, and I feel like that's poetry. Like that's what poetry yeah. does for me. Cause I like, um, I have not read them and I have not done, looked at them, Lee's poems in years, but, um, from like 2001 to like 2000, Oh geez, maybe like six, maybe 2007. Um, most of the poetry that I wrote was either uh, very overtly Christian or very thinly veiled Christian themed. Uh huh. Um, and I I did a project with those poems, um, but I like I haven't read them since then. But going through the project and you know printing out these poems and rereading some of them, like I was immediately transported back into where I like where I was emotionally when I was writing these things. Um, and I think, I'm sure that I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I feel like poetry, like the, one of the points, one of potentially the biggest points I think with poetry or the, the things that it, it allows access for is, um, the, the immediacy of someone else's sight or someone else's experience it's like you're not i don't feel like you're necessarily stepping into their shoes and experiencing experiencing what they experienced it as they experienced it but it's more of like it's a like a distilling down to this emotion or this emotional core that you've had you've you've had that emotion like the thing that have got that's gotten you to that emotion is probably very differently than what other someone else does but um and I think like this is one of the reasons that I love haiku that it's it's they're so small but they're so open that you know you you really feel like you own the emotion because you're the one that has to fill in all of the rest of the details and all the rest of the stuff to be like oh this like this is what made me feel this um and yeah like that's that it's like that's a really really powerful thing to me to be able to to read something or to sit to sit somewhere and to read something or to hear something and be like, I know, like, I know that I know exactly what you've been through. And I, um, and especially with like speaking of, you know, the election and of Trump. Um, and I feel like the, his administration's position on, you know, like the disabled or, yeah. um, like African-American or, uh, Latin, like Latinx or Muslim, um, people in the United States that it's this other that you know he's he's crafting these this this group or these groups as like they are other they are something that it, that is not like American something that's not like that's not even worth um, being understood mm -hmm. and I feel like poetry is diametrically opposed to that that idea it's like that the whole the whole point um of at least what part of like one of the biggest points 
or the purposes that when I write, it's like I I want there to be like that division between us, whoever is reading my work, to thin a little bit, mm-hmm. so they can see it's like oh, you know, it's like you oh you're just you're exactly the same as me. I mean, not really, but yeah, right, you know, um, yeah, that that we share these elements of our interior lives. Um, in common yes. and that, you know, it, it breaks down the differences between us in a certain degree. This kind of just occurred to me. So Lay I don't know if there me. is anything here, <laughs> but you know, when you, when you are describing kind of that empathetic quality of poetry and also the, um, maybe less esteemed position that poetry holds <laughs> now in American culture, mm-hmm. I wonder, like, it, it, it makes me sort of think, um, like, I have always felt that poetry has a, a connotation of femininity, like, it's a more feminine oh. art form than, for example, like, linear narrative novel writing or short stories where, like, you start at one place, you end at another place, a thing happened in the middle. Huh. Um, where, you know, it's more about a single moment and the emotions and feelings and experience of that moment, which made me think about an article that I read recently about, um, the cinematography of A Handmaid's Tale, which I will confess I have not been able to bring myself to watch. Mm. Um, but they talked about the cinematic female gaze, which they described as, um, encapsulating like feelings and emotions and experiences of a character portrayed in the movie or television show mm-hmm. more so than like the strict narrative linear progression of things that happen to that person. And so they describe cool. a scene again, I haven't seen a handmaid's tale, but yes. they describe a scene where a character is, is running from people mm-hmm. Um and the sort of chaotic nature of the way that the scene was filmed and lots of close-ups of her face and her emotions more so than like, you know, sort of Michael Bay cutting back and forth between right. the yeah. pursuer and the pursued, you know, so you know that there, she's still running from them. It's more about what it feels like to be pursued. Yeah, so it would be, it'd uh-huh. be the, the filming it in such a way to capture the emotional aspect of or the feeling of what this chase scene would be um, in a more... Um, I don't know, like, probably heavily stylistic or stylized uh, means versus, like, the born identity where, you know, it's like, it's, right. it's jump cuts and you're like, you're in this car, you see this other car, you're in the, you know. Uh, right, right. Huh. Yeah, like, you don't have to keep changing modes of transportation. She's running through the woods, you know they're still after her or she wouldn't be running. Right. Um, but the the focus of the scene is more so about her experience of being pursued rather than just the fact that she is being pursued so that you know, like experience rather than than linear narrative and i don't know if like there's anything there huh. but it 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 makes me think about sort of the the devaluation of emotional labor and soft skills that we see yes in American society anyway. Yes. Oh, you know, I would and, wholeheart- and I feel like most, like most art, I think falls into or falls victim to this where it's mm-hmm. a, um, you know, like I, 
I don't know. I guess, as I say, I don't know why I just thought of this, but I know exactly why I just thought of this. Um, <laughs> when I, before I went to UL, um, I did a year at UNO with my brother. Um, uh -huh. We were both music majors. Uh, we were in the same program. And uh, one... I want to say it was one weekend, but it may have been, it was, I imagine that it was probably building up over the course of a couple of weeks, um, that my brother and I were entered into a discussion with my parents that ended up turning into kind of a low key fight about if it was more difficult to be a, like an engineering student versus a like it like let's say an engineering major versus a music major and then ext mm -hmm. like extrapolating that out to any sort of um like uh, any of the soft arts or the soft um i don't know like the arts i guess just in yeah general. um and they were very very incensed that my brother and i had the nerve to equate like not just equate, but also potentially um, infer that that being a like a music major was more difficult than an engineering major. Um, uh huh. And I think I don't know. I I think that there is. I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure of why they were incensed, um, but I think I think a large part of it probably is that they didn't really see value in the stuff that Matthew and I were doing. Um, yeah. You know, it's like we were, like the times that we would practice or we would, you know, be in our rooms, you know, like noodling around on our instruments or working through something, like they would see it as, uh, see it as us just like farting around. Like not, right. not, not doing anything um, of value or of worth or something that could... Um, I don't know, could like lean, lend itself to, to some, some monetary value. Exactly. And I think that yeah. that, I think that that at the core of it is, is probably the issue that, um, like the arts are, there's a, there's a, I feel like there's a really weird interaction in the arts with like capitalism or like neoliberal, uh, market ideas mm -hmm. that like, there's there's definitely a point to art, but it's not a point that can be quantified. Or there's a value to it that can't be easily quantifiable. That you can't you can't like do a metric of like, oh, what is what is this you know Rothko painting doing? Yeah, and I would say probably like back to our our you know poetry versus prose. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say even more so with poetry because it's not like you can sell the rights. And make it a movie, you know. No, you cannot. Like, there's there's a much greater monetary potential, I would say, in writing, you know, a young adult novel. Oh yeah. Than yes, in course. writing a collection of poetry, you know, like in the lens of capitalism, there is a lot more monetary worth in a novel yes. than in a poem. Oh yeah. And I like I I feel like I've mentioned this on the podcast a couple of times, um, but I'd be interested. I mean, it seems pertinent to this discussion, and I'm interested in your take on this, Ruth. Um, mm -hmm. That in my experience with in uh, various the various poetry circles that I've been a part of, um, 
it seems like there is inherently a much greater sense of maybe not to the point of collaboration, but at least like very much non-competition or more of a sense of like community, I guess where you're not, you wouldn't necessarily be like, you know, everyone's working together towards something, but there's the sense of like everyone's supporting everyone else that's there. And yeah, um, I went to uh, the Vermont Studio Center for a residency back in June, and I had the opportunity to talk to some other poets and some other prose people about this. And my suspicions were more or less um, validated uh, that, like, for, for, for them, that's like, you know, the poetry scene in New York, a poetry scene in Chicago or other places, that there's still that sense of, like, maybe two degrees, but there's still that sense of... Um, I don't know, just kind of intuit, like intuiting that there's enough space for everybody. And it's not a zero-sum game. Yes, and I think, I think that the, probably the, one of the biggest contributing factors to that is the lack of uh, a whole lot of capital or a whole lot of money in like, the poetry game. Because yeah. like, I, I do not know of any poet in the United States um, in the last... Oh, geez, maybe like 40 or 50 years. This is rough sum. If anybody, yeah. if anybody is listening and they have an example of somebody who, of what I'm about to say, please let me know because I would love to hear about it. Um, but I've not heard of like a poet in the last maybe 40 or 50 years that could survive solely being a poet. Mm. Like they're a yeah. poet, like there are poets and an educator or a poet yeah. and the head of some, you know, some something or a poet and they work here or a poet and they do this. Um, but like nobody, nobody is going to be raking in, you know, like six or seven figures as a poet. No one's right. going to be selling a poetry manuscript for, you know, like Stephen King or like James Patterson style money. Right, um, right. And I think because of that, there's this with with the lack of that with the lack of capital and the lack of the the kind of cutthroat competition that that engenders there is a much um i don't know it's like it's it's friendlier there's there's just yeah. there's this like when i'm when i'm in uh like poetry heavy literary communities there's this feeling of like i can breathe like i can take a deep breath and just like i can exhale and just relax, you know, because yeah. I, I know that there's nobody like there's nobody gunning for whatever the hell I'm doing. Um, right, right. And uh, like I feel closely, closely paired with the whole that whole feel in poetry. You have that whole scene in like micro presses or small presses um, or a lot of, you know, like small independent presses that, again, you know, like, nobody's nobody's making money doing this. Right. At, you know, at best you're breaking even. More than likely, it's probably a net negative. Um, but you know, it's it gets this like you do it because you love it. Like there's there's no other way to justify doing this thing, um, other than you do it because you're passionate about it and you do it because you couldn't not do it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I feel like with like with art in general, there's this this idea of. 
you know, like what's, what's the point or what's the value of it? Um, and I think that like pros for sure, um, movies have kind of become their own behemoth of a thing. Um, and visual art to an extent, I think is inter like, I mean, again, there are degrees of this, but there's a lot of visual artists that could be just visual artists. Um, I think because for whatever reason, people are willing to pay what that work is usually worth. Yeah. Whereas with poetry, like a handmade chapbook, like no one's going to, no one's really going to look at that as a, as a piece of art. They're going to look right. at it as a, as a book and books are supposed to be cheap. So if you ask right. someone to spend Books like, mass yeah, it's like yeah. you ask somebody to spend like a hundred bucks on something that was like letterpressed and then handbound, you'll get, I don't know, maybe like one of every, I don't know, like 50 people that would be like, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, uh, yeah, that's well, perfectly reasonable for me to do this. Yeah, I think that, I think that the perception definitely is that like visual art has that you know economic value of scarcity mm -hmm. like there's generally oh, yeah there's an original one of, yeah okay yeah like there's an original and you have those sorts of capitalistic bragging rights if it's yours right yeah you, you know can, you can display it you can have it like over your your ceo desk or in your your right like your in your mansion room. Mm -hmm. um where i don't think that people are as familiar with the the process of, you know, um, crafting books mm -hmm. and people just have that perception of, I can go to Barnes and Noble and I can get a book of poetry, right? you know, and it'll cost me $3. So there's not the same sort of sense of easily, I would say there's not the same easily accessible sense of prestige Yes. in owning even something that, you know, took as long and was as painstaking to create as a painting. Yes. You know, but there's not the same cultural and like societal understanding of the labor that went into it. Yes. Um, and I think that there's that um, potentially the whole idea of like fame probably works into that too, that, you know, like even if you've never studied art history, you probably know who Picasso is. Um, right. Or, you know, Hemingway or, you know, but like, um, like Jane Hirschfield and Mary Oliver for me would be like, if you're, if you're in the poetry community, I, those are people that I would kind of expect everyone to know. Um, mm -hmm. and when I was in Vermont, I was talking to some, some other poets and I mentioned them and like, I don't, I don't know who that is. I was like, I, but they're the, they're probably the most, some of the most well-known current po poets now, um, but even like again, even with that, there's there's not that sense of like n not everyone has heard of Mary Oliver. Yeah. And because not everyone has heard of Mary, Mary Oliver, it's like if you have one of her books or if you have a like you know super limited edition handmade chat book that features all this all the shit in it that you have on your bookshelf. Uh huh. You know, that's not like a big bragging right. Like oh, I have this. Like um, Jane Hirschfield did a like a really really limited. God, they were gorgeous chapbooks that were printed by... I don't remember the name of the press, but I'll add it to um, the description. So give me one second to write this down. <laughs> uh, 
but they're like they were gorgeous and I think that they were only doing a run of like 100 125 um, and each one of them was worth I think over a hundred bucks potentially well over a hundred bucks and like it was worth it they were, I mean well worth it in in the thing in the sense that like that's that's what I would expect to pay for something like that or, right. or that's not exorbitantly priced to me. It was a little out of my wheelhouse, so I was unable to get one. But, um, you know, even something like that, you know, it's like if you if you had one of those things, it's not like you can display me like, oh, check out this, you know, this one of sixty Hirschfield chapbooks that I have. People like, I don't right, know. right. Like it's a book, big deal, you know. Yeah, like even at that point, when you're at like that level of scarcity and prestige within the community, that values it Mm -hmm. like it's not something that you can stick on your wall and have you know your average dinner guest come over and ooh and ah over it which i think ultimately is a lot of the points yes of like collecting visual art you know and obviously there are people who care very deeply about it and there are people who you know collect it because it's very meaningful for them. But I think when you're looking at, you know, like huge auction houses and the kind of, in in my opinion, exorbitant prices that, you know, famous visual artists can expect for their work. Oh, yeah. Um, it's not about how much do I like this artist. It's about how much can I impress other people who will know how much I paid for this. Right. Yes. It's more of a... Yeah, and I, again, that's this the whole sort of like the value of it that it, it might not necessarily it might not necessarily have monetary value, although in those circumstances it definitely does. Mm-hmm. But there's still a very quantifiable amount of personal value that you can assign to this thing versus like you know uh, like a small a small hand bound chapbook of like English language haiku. You know, there's yeah. no. It probably will have great personal value to you, but it's not. It's not really an external thing of you know, like, oh, I'm. My my social status is raised because I, I right. have a you know a small chapbook of Basho poems. It's like no one. Yeah. No one's get. No one cares. No one cares yeah. anything about that. Um. Yeah, I. It's. Part of me kind of wishes that there was a like the whole patron patronage. Um, no, but if you if you are a receiver of money from a patron, is what's the what's the term for that? Oh, I don't know actually. If you have a patron, you are. Um. Hmm. Huh. I'm I'm googling it right now because uh, <laughs> term for someone who I feel like I just read a book and I figured out what the word was in Spanish, but I can't <clears throat> remember now. Receives a patron <laughs> edge. Boss is to employee as patron is to. Uh, I beneficiary. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway. Yeah, I guess a beneficiary of um, a patronage. Yes. So I, I kind of wish that 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 style was still in vogue or still around. And I know that like there are grants and stuff, but like I would, I really, 
I guess it's maybe it's like a weird sort of like like a <laughs> like a sugar daddy or sugar mama for an artist. <laughs> um, where like I would really just like love for someone that has a a healthy amount of cash to f- like somehow come across things that I do like. Yeah, I, I'll support that. I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. give him. I'll give him money. Um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like, I mean, you were mentioning earlier that sense in the poetry community that this is not a zero-sum game and that, you know, everybody can succeed together and that your success doesn't take away from my success. Yes. And I I feel like that is a little undercut by grants. You know, (laughs) because only one person can get a given grant, and so it does sort of... um, inject that sense of competition and that sense of yes and that's that's something that i've i've actually kind of struggled with more so with like poetry contests Mm -hmm. Um, and i think i think that i would be um like i feel i don't know it's it's one of those things that kind of like pricks pricks my conscience or pricks something in me a little bit but I think that it would prick me more if there weren't as many out there as there are. Oh, um, yeah. And, like, grants, too. That You know, it's like if there was one grant that everyone was gunning for, that would be that would be a real big problem for me. But, like, there, was, there are tons of them that are out there. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, makes it a little... I don't know. Like, a, just a little bit better... Or maybe not as undercut as much. Yeah. Um, because because there's also not necessarily like if you are a if you're a writer or let, let's say you're a poet and you're also a teacher but you're you know you're doing like other things then you might not necessarily like need the grant. Right. Um, like you might want it it might be helpful but if it came down to it it's like you don't necessarily need it. Whereas there are other artists that are in positions you know it's like like they need it, you know. It's like they they have to be able to take off a off a of work to go do this research that's necessary for whatever thing that they're doing, or they have to be able to like they need just like two months away somewhere where they can focus solely on whatever it is that they're that they're working on. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it, I mean, yes, I, I do agree that it is undercut a little bit because you do, like, there are these opportunities. Um, I think that the fact that there's so many of them helps. Yeah, um, definitely. And the fact that, you know, you, again, you can kind of find your niche or niche with them, although that might make it a little more competition-wise that if, you know, like, you know, like, there are grants or there are opportunities for, like, women or, um, like, female poets, um, I don't, I don't know why I said female, woman poets, um, <laughs> either like biologically or identifying as, as women. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there are grants specifically for like African American or like Latinx writers or artists or whatever. Um, but I don't know. It, yeah, it's, I just, I wish that either one, there is just a shit ton of money that was accessible to everyone that you could just kind of like dip out what you needed when you needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, 
most of the shit that costs you money would just be kind of taken care of. Yeah. Um, Careful, you're going to get me started on basic income in this <laughs> venue. I actually, <laughs> I was reading a little bit of an article um, about, I think, like, didn't Sweden try it a couple of years ago? Or they're currently trying it yeah, right now? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, I've, I've heard kind of different things about the success of it. Um, but it was really interesting to see the, some of the results that, you know, like doing this for, you know, like a handful of years, um, the people, the people conducting these researchers, like, yeah, people are still working like about as much, if not a little harder than they used to. Wow. Um, yeah. And, like I think I would still work. No. Yeah. And that, like, but, but you the know, whole for idea the people- of like, um, no, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that for the people for whom the work that, you know, they want to engage in or that they are best suited for or whatever is not as lucrative right. as yes. other people's work, you know, it would definitely enable some people to work harder and longer hours at their chosen yes. profession. Yes, and it would also, I think, make or one of the one of the things of the article that I was reading mentioned was that it uh, had a tendency to, or I don't know if this is actual results or this is someone just commenting on like a comment on it that the sure. whole idea of um, that like the the lower wage or like the the less skilled jobs. Um, would tend to treat their employees better because if you, mm-hmm. um, if you were not, if if you were not completely dependent upon that job for your income, um, then, yeah, like, then you would you, be much more likely to leave if you're being treated poorly. Right, exactly, and also like, like education wise, could like if people are spending more time with their families, um, then like the family health will get better. Um, if there are teenagers that are that are having to pull to hold down jobs to help out their family, like if that can be alleviated, then like, yeah. you know more people will be going to school. Like more kids would be in school and less of them would be dropping out. More adults would probably pursue higher education. Um, you know, like yeah. all, all of these, all of these, like these things that people look at as separate aspects that are actually mm-hmm. all connected. Like all of them tended to get better according. I'll see if I can. I'll see if I can find that article. Yeah, you know, it's so much of our days are spent, you know, doing things that ultimately are maybe exclusively in service of making sure that we can afford rent and put food on the table. Yes, that it it comes at the sacrifice not only of you know, people being able to, like you were saying, like, take the time that they need to create art, but also to help their kids with their homework at home so that you get this, this striation in the school system where the kids whose parents can afford to be home at night, get homework help. And the kids whose parents have to work two or three shift jobs don't get homework help. Mm -hmm. And so the cycle continues and they don't get the educational help that they need. And so they too end up in, you know, low paying jobs. Yes. And then can't help their kids with homework. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Seattle has 
Seattle has turned me into a, a little bit of a a little bit of an anarchist, a little bit of a communist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's one of the things that's, that's really interesting to me that um, I feel like most people when they talk about communism refer to like Stalin. Yeah. Like Stalin communism, which is not communism. Right. Um, like. And I know that there are there are issues with like Marx and Engels kind of whole idea, but from according to Dr. Chet, who was probably one of the best history teachers I've ever had in my life, uh-huh. um, the whole a very very basic, uh, probably very unnuanced reading of of communism or what Marx and Engels were trying to set up was a like the whole idea of it is. Uh, creating some sort of like social economic system in which people could pursue the utmost of their creativity. Yeah. Um, because I think for them, the whole idea was, you know, like the, uh, the workers being alienated from their work and being alienated from everything that they, that they do. And are you know, it's like with the industrialization, it's like you do one task in an assembly line sort of a thing. So right. you have, you have no connection to starting a job and finishing a job. Um, right. And it's all like, Everything that you that you do and you work is to be, um, like, or you know, like you said, like most of your day is being spent making sure that you have enough money to pay people to like eat and to sleep somewhere and to like have all your stuff yeah. places. Um, so if you know if the government was in control of everything and was providing things for everyone and the people were directly in control of the government then everyone would have a say of like, oh, you know, this is kind of what we need and what we should be doing. Um, and if everything is essentially provided for you, then that would allow people to like do what they want, like spend time doing what they want or feeling what they need to do. Right, right. Um, which has been, it's been interesting to see um, all these articles popping out about um like millennials and like work-life balance and the whole idea mm-hmm. of, um, I was actually, I was reading something about, uh, certain companies now in interviews will ask the prospective employees, um, like, would you be willing to work like weekends or holidays? Or if I think there was one, I don't know where this was, where this was, but one of the questions was like, if you were with your family in, in Disney world, and you received a call from the company that there was this big thing that you needed to do. Um, would you leave your family at Disney World and go do the work? And they were expecting what? you to say yes. Um, and there was some, I think it was the New York Times, the whoever, I don't know if it was like someone in the HR department or the head of HR said that, like, if you, if you are applying to a job there... And um, the New York Times responds with like either I don't know like with that a um, like an interview appointment or they respond to you. They expect you to respond, or at least she expects you to respond within three hours of getting that email. What? Yeah, and she was like, you know, I don't, I don't want. Oh fuck, I, I'm probably gonna not quote this correctly, but she was like, I don't want people to be working all the time, but I want people to be thinking about it. Or at least, like, thinking, I don't know, wow. something, something along those lines. And, like, this is, 
reading that, I was like, this is really kind of terrifying that dystopian yeah that like you that you are a part of the job which and i think that that's like as i I know that there was work-life balance before like the advent of the smartphone and the the, like essentially 24-hour connection that you have with jobs but i feel like nowadays it's so much more important that people realize you know it's like oh shit i like I need to turn off or it's like, I need to make a rule that after seven o'clock I'm not anything that happens. I'm not, I'm not, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Um, Right. Because like, that's, I'm, I feel very fortunate, um, working where I, I work at a, um, I don't actually, I don't know if you know this. I work at a cabinet shop. Um, I did not know that. Okay. Well, I work at a cabinet shop. Um, and it is one of the things that makes it, fantastic or at least this out this element of working there is fantastic that uh i i cannot bring my work home with me yeah and it is such a i don't know it's like a low stakes job that like there is nothing that like i would have to rush back to the shop to do they can't wait until the next day yeah so when i come home like i i when i leave work i'm gone like, I don't think about it. I don't think about any of the shit that I'm doing or any of the stuff that I have to do. It's just, like, I'm gone. From the time that I leave to the time that I go back to the shop, the shop could essentially just not exist for me. It's, <laughs> it's totally off of my radar. Um, and that's... It's a really freeing experience to think that, it's like, you know, I can I can come home and just not deal with it at all. Completely, yeah. Completely not deal with it at all. Yeah, and that's something that I've had to really work to in in my job and that I have watched my colleagues really struggle with because there's definitely this concept in education of, like, first person to work, last person to leave wins. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, like it, it is tough in a caring profession to not want to work until you really do have everything done. Mm-hmm. But... You know, like, to put it sort of bluntly, I get paid for seven and a half hours of work. Yeah. And I found that last year I was doing more along the lines of 10 days. And while I want to do the best for my kids, I also, you know, there's a... best for yourself, too. Yeah, there's a book by a social worker here in Seattle. Her name is Laura Vandernoot Lipsky, and the book is called Trauma Stewardship. And one of the things that she says in her book is that you can't pour from an empty cup. Yes. And I don't know why I was so enthusiastic about that, but yes, I, I totally, I totally agree with that. <laughs> well, you know, and it's, it's like, if all I am is a teacher and I'm not, you know, a fully realized human beyond that, how am I going to teach my kids to grow up to be people? Right. And beyond that, because even that is me putting it in terms of how efficiently can I perform my job? (laughs) You know, I am a person. I wasn't always a teacher. I probably won't always be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I've known teachers who retire and then go back to their lives without teaching and don't have any hobbies and don't know what to do if they're not in the classroom. Yeah, because Um, that, that has essentially become your life. 
everything. Yeah. You know, when you're doing it 10 or 12 hours a day, you know, and I've, I've, I've had the experience where coworkers of mine have like compared me to other teachers. I was like, oh, well, so-and-so was here until seven. I'm like, well, bummer. <laughs> like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> like, I would like to go home and cook. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, have, I have a dog that needs attention. Yeah, exactly. You know, like this is not my entire life. And I think that that's another element, like we were saying that, um, you know, that American culture maybe values poetry less because it's not linear and it's not or necessarily linear or necessarily narrative. Right. And it kind of dwells in singular moments and singular emotions more frequently and experiences. I think that... Um, this idea of taking the time to do things like encapsulate an experience in language, you're not going to make money off of that probably, you know, so why is it valuable? Why aren't you at work for that other hour? I think, you know, it's it's a very pervasive and very toxic attitude. Oh, definitely. Um, It makes us all much poorer for buying into it. Yes. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And that's something that, like the whole, you can't pour from an empty cup idea mm-hmm. that, like, it's it's tough to, I think, to balance the responsibilities that you have to yourself and that you have to others. Um, yeah. And I, um, I've definitely recognized it myself. And I don't, like, actually, there's a teacher at, at UL who, who talked about this in, in one of my classes. Uh, do you remember Diana Stetko? Yeah, I never had her, but I remember her. Oh, she's uh, we we've kept in touch, and she's she's a just a tremendous person. But one of the things that she she mentioned, I think it was in a in a prose class, that I will always remember. Um, like she came in a lot. Sometimes she would come in at the beginning of class, and she'd be thinking about something. So for the first like five or ten minutes of class, she would just kind of expound or talk about something that had kind of gotten uh, that had raised her hackles a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them was the idea of she was like I don't understand why it's up it's so great to be selfless and why it's terrible to be selfish because she's like if you uh-huh. if you are completely selfless like you have no self it's like that's the definition of it that there's like there's nothing in you anymore because it's it's gone you're devoid of it um, yeah and that's a really like I think that there is. I don't know if it's degrees of like good selfishness or bad selfishness or like selfishness is on one side of a spectrum and then narcissism or self-centeredness is on the other side. But um, like there's some, it's like there's sometimes it's like you got to do shit for yourself. You just yeah. you have to. That's just because if you don't, then you're not going to be in a good headspace or good mental space or good like emotional or spiritual or whatever. And everything that from that point on until you get yourself into like a good space is going to suffer and you could potentially do, you know, like maybe not irrevocable damage. I totally, I'm just going to blow by the fact that I probably mumbled through that word. Anyway. um, (laughs) Well, I think that, you know, you can, a way that I try to think about it is less as selfishness, just because that word has such a negative connotation to it, but as self-preservation. Yes, yes, I you agree. Know? Mm-hmm. Or like self, and, 
I mean, and I think, you know, there's a kind of a buzzword nowadays. It's like self-care. It's like that's... Self-care, yeah. That's really what it is that like you... So a friend of mine um, deals or uh, experiences anxiety and it's something that she's had for, for most of her life. And it's, she's always, it's been tough for her a lot of the times to, to mm-hmm. like to deal with her anxiety and deal with herself when she's feeling anxious. And um, I guess this was a couple of years ago that she told me this, that uh, one of her therapists told her, because this, this, this friend is very much um, like she wants, she tries and wants to take care of her friends. She like, that's, she, she loves taking care of people. Yeah. Um, and so her therapist was like, well, you know, when you're feeling anxious, try to see and deal with your anxiety as if like, see it as, as like a smaller, maybe not a smaller version of you, but like as, as somebody that you can help. Yeah. Um, or like see yourself when you're anxious as, as the same way that you would see a friend in need and deal with yourself yeah. the way that you, cause I, I think that that's, that's so something that's so difficult for a lot of people is to, to treat yourself with the same sort of care and patience and intimacy and uh, you know whatever else that you would uh, a friend you know yeah yeah because like if you, if you had a friend in need it's like you would drop everything to go help that friend and yet most of the time when people are in need to help themselves or, or need themselves like they won't drop stuff like everything be like oh shit i'm gonna i'm gonna you know i'm gonna be gone for a day and just out in the woods by myself because I need alone time and just not to see anybody. So bye. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think also that, so when I started working in, um, or doing research, I guess, into trauma, both how it affects kids and how it affects caring professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of like right before self care became like a big buzzword. Okay. And I think that there is, even with self-care, like the way that it's talked about sort of popularly, um, a consumptive aspect to it where it's like, take care of yourself, go get a bath bomb from lunch. (laughs) You know, it's like, what can you buy and get and consume to take better care of yourself rather than like, I mean, like your example, you know, going into the woods, like that is absolutely a big part of my self-care is like taking time to be in nature. Yes. Um, partially because there's some really good research behind it. Yes. Um, and partially because it's just something that I really love. But I think that we, even when we try to take time for self-care, we have a hard time conceiving of what that looks like in an actually like rejuvenative way. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, rather than just like taking a break and watching Netflix, yeah, which I've done. Yes, like not gonna say I haven't. Sometimes no. that's what I need. Right. But also, you know, like really being introspective and thinking, like, what is the, what are the things that I'm missing, or what are the things that I'm depleting? Right. When I am working with others, or or you know, just the cumulative toll and like the daily toll of. What, you know, whatever your job is, yeah. like, what are the things that I'm depleting and what are the things that I'm not giving myself access to that I need to be a whole person? Yeah. Yeah. Like I was feeling kind of shitty yesterday. Um, 
for a number of reasons, and I, I kind of just hung around the apartment watching, like, YouTube videos and reading comics online, um, which, like, I think I needed to just, I mean, I definitely was not feeling up to really doing anything, but um, at the end of the night, I was like, I just, I feel like, I mean, I don't feel more shitty, but I don't feel less shitty. Yeah, um, yeah. So this morning, I got up, and fortunately, like, because yesterday I was feeling, like, physically kind of bad, I think... I apparently have a problem keeping myself uh, properly hydrated on the weekends. Mm. Um, I think that that was a large part of it. But this morning I woke up and I was feeling sort of good. Um, And my roommate wanted the the apartment to herself this morning. Um, So I got up and I went for a run. Um, And I was like, I feel afterwards, it's like I'm worn out and I'm tired and I'm crazy fucking sweaty, but I feel pretty damn good that this is the first thing that I did with my day. Um, and I'm, Oh, also, I don't know if you, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I've been taking, uh, aerial silks, like aerial fabric. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so on the weekends, there's, uh, open hang, which is just sort of like extra practice time where you can get into the, the studio and just work on shit. Um, and I'm going to go do that tonight. But like, if I didn't, that's cool. Like I got my exercise. I got like my physicalness out of the day, out of the completely out of the yeah. way early in the morning. I was like, okay, well, but I just like, that's something that I noticed with myself that I've been neglecting. And I also think that for a lot of people there, that's a, a component that is largely over overlooked is the amount of um, like physical activity or physical stuff that you're doing. Um, yeah. And like, I'm, I'm relatively fortunate that the job that I have, I'm essentially on my feet like all day. Um, uh-huh. I, I really only sit if I'm trying to math stuff out or like lay, lay things out for cuts on plywood or if I'm eating lunch. Other than that, like I'm on my feet, I'm hefting around cabinets, pieces of plywood, all that stuff. Um, but like outside of that, I've been largely sedentary. Um, and like, yeah. I definitely know that when I'm like not like even doing like exercising exercise routines and stuff in my apartment like that can help but like being out and like going for a walk or going for a run or going doing expending like larger sums of energy um, helps it makes me feel so much better than the times that I don't do that yeah definitely um, yeah there's a I've been doing a lot of research about that too, about how, you know, like when, as you accumulate stress, you know, your, your like lizard brain doesn't (laughs) really differentiate it, like differentiate between like, oh, my job is stressful and I'm tired and, oh, there's a lion, I gotta go. And so, you know, expending that energy and that stress that you build up does like really help with your baseline stress level Mm -hmm. uh, rather than you just like keeping that tension and like raising your baseline every time you experience something stressful or traumatic um, that, you know, you really kind of need to like purge your body of, of those emotions or they like biologically, like chemically get stored. Yes. um, And make it harder for you to cope the next time. I wonder, I wonder how much of, uh, or how much your like gut microbiome p- 
plays into all of that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Are you Googling? No. Um, there's just, I'm writing a note to myself. Um, ah, look it up later. Yes. But no, but that's like, because I've, I've heard, I've read some stuff and I've heard some, we have NPR on at the shop all day. Um, so I've definitely heard some reports about, you know, like the microbiome can influence your emotions and can do influence all this other shit. And it's like, I, that's astounding. I mean, it makes sense to me, but it's also one of those, like, I never would have thought that just this shit going, that like the bacteria that's just hanging around in my gut. Um, yeah, um, it's a little scary to think about how our emotions are so impacted by physical things and um, the chemistry of our bodies and yeah, uh, things that are, you know, it's not just you and your brain. Well, I mean, I guess it is just <laughs> you and your brain experiencing it, but on a much more physical, biological level than I think we typically conceive of emotions happening on. Yeah. So this this is a I guess a, a specific uh, poetry centric question. I don't know if it's so much of a question or maybe it's just amusing. Um, not like haha amusing, but a space amusing. <laughs> amusing, yes. Yes, um, whatever. Um, I don't uh, I don't know if this was captured on one of the the mini like before the po- the episode started things that we're talking about, but. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that you said that you mentioned that like you read like nursery rhymes and like song do like heavily rhyming song stuff with the kids yeah. that you work with, um, and it's yeah. really, it's really interesting to me, and this is something that I haven't really ever thought about, um, but it might be again the the sort of correlation of, or might be more more of the reason why poetry is kind of derided as as a uh, legitimate artistic pursuit mm-hmm. um, that like when we're young when we're kids when we're babies like the first some of the first experiences that we have with language are essentially first yeah um you know it's not like uh it's not like shakespearean sonnet style verses but it's still you right. know, it's like things that have a, a pretty regular meter um there's a, a pretty there's you know, like rhythm there's rhyme there's a you know it's like it's not even though you know like they are more often than not uh i guess like narratives um Uh they're still written in such a way that you know it's like they're it's poems you're just yeah like long form ish poems um it's like dr seuss or um you know go dogs go or any of that any of that type of stuff yeah Um, which I, I didn't, until you mentioned that, it's like, that's not something that I really would have put together that that's like our first experience with language is essentially, it's like, you know, poetry, you can argue whether or not it's good poetry. Um, right. But like usually. Very in, like rudimentary poetry. Yeah. And then, and then there's this idea that you graduate to, you know, books or you graduate, yeah. or like, you know, and books in, in that sense is like stories or, you know, like real short kid novels. Yeah. Because um, I, I want to say that when I did Accelerated Reader when I was in grade school, there was not a single book of poetry on any of the lists that were available to us to get the points, to get the, the stars yeah, for like nice. the pizza parties. That sounds likely. 
Um, and that's that's really interesting to me to think that that might have some some uh, that that idea is ingrained in like maybe not necessarily uh, intentionally ingrained into children, but that idea of like you read poetry when you're young and you're image. Maybe that's the thing. It's like, it's, it, it's an immature thing to, for poetry is, is I think viewed as like Im- uh, emotionally immature. Maybe. Mm, yeah. Um, or emotions that have not matured. Um, yeah. Well, and I think that, that, and I say this as someone who is involved in the education system, I think that it's kind of, it, it, it it's a two pronged, attack on poetry so like you have this concept that you know nursery rhymes and those first exposures to poetry are are baby stuff yes you know and then when you're formally introduced to poetry typically it's presented very dry very academic yeah yeah you know there's there's not i mean i didn't i didn't have a really like gut level experience with poetry until I was well into my undergrad. I, I would you know, definitely like, agree. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. Like and and, and even then it wasn't, it wasn't like a professor sat me down or was talking to me in a group and was like, here's how you read poetry so that it means something to you. Right. You know, poetry is always presented as something to like analyze, dig into and analyze. Yeah. And it feels like, Um, One of the things I was reflecting on in my own experience with poetry academically is that poetry always felt to me like a challenge that I was never up to. Yes. Yes. You know, like I would get like, oh, we're going to read The Wasteland, like (laughs) half four languages and be like PhD level fluent in the Western literary canon to be able to begin to comprehend this poem. Right. You know, and, and that is so much of the exposure that we give kids to poetry is, hey, this is a really hard thing that you have to work really hard to understand. Like, this is a challenge that we're presenting you. And it's not even, so two things that the, when you said that you were not, it wasn't like you had a, so I agree. I never really had a professor, um, I never really had a professor do this with me actually in class until grad school with the whole like, this is how you read a poem to, to, in such a way that you, that it makes you feel something, but also mm-hmm. was not really presented or had a, had a professor present me with poets or like, these are poets that when you read it will make you feel something. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's so much to do with like what we are presenting students. Yes. And I think as, you know, even middle school and high school, you know, we're presenting these this kind of static view of poetry mm-hmm. where, you know, eighth graders today are reading the same poems that I read when I was in eighth oh, grade yeah. as if nothing had happened in poetry since then. Yeah. You know, and even then there had been so much poetry that if I had been exposed to it when I was that age, I would have gotten poetry better and more readily and faster. Yeah. You know, if somebody had shown me, I mean, Gwendolyn Brooks, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was in high school, like I would have responded so much better to that than to Elliot. Yeah. Or like Saeed Jones. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's, I think that that's. That's that's a big big issue I think for me is that it you were the the whole like 
Western canon with poetry is so, it's so old and so white. Yeah. Um, because, like, oh, fuck, who wrote, um, Patricia Smith, um, wrote Blood Dazzler, which is a poem, or it's a, it's a collection that is, um, oh, I want to say it's, like, there are some persona pieces, um, but it's essentially about, like, Katrina. Ah. And, um, so this, according, this, I'm on Coffeehouse Press's website, and there's a little blurb from New Delta Review, which reads, uh, Each poem provides a beautiful and fiercely painful encounter, which commands the full emotional attention of the reader, which is very true. Um, uh, Blood Dazzler in years to come may be the definitive collection of poetry to chronicle Hurricane Katrina. Um, I feel like I read this in, uh, I think, my intro... Uh, poetry workshop in grad school and I feel like every every high school student and college student that are that are dealing anything with poetry in like the Gulf Coast should read this poem yeah because you know like everybody who's who's been alive since 2000 what 15 no 2000 no 2005 Jesus Katrina Christ. yeah Katrina was five god damn um I know like anybody who's been, you know, who was, I don't know, like five or six and up from 2005. Yeah. You know, probably has some sort of trauma related to Katrina. Um, but yeah, that like it's there's so many other poets and there's so much out there that I think people could connect with better than like wordsworth and yeah like and there are some wordsworth poems it's like you know they're fine but in my experience it's like it's it's too it's too much there's it's too lush there's too like because of the the meter it's being written in there's like a lot of crazy linguistic gymnastics that goes into to place of getting the like this the syllables in the meter to to match out what mm-hmm. you want it to be um and even though it's it might be like talking about something that's a that's an idea it's like you have to translate it into kind of like simple language as right. opposed to other i mean bukowski has his issues has a, has a <laughs> lot of his issues but you know he's a very forthright poet yeah um, you know there's not a whole lot of like uh poesy in his writing um as there is just sort of like moments that you get dropped into you're like i don't know what like I'm feeling something. I don't know how the hell I got here. Um, yeah. Well, but. and I think that the the part of the issue too is that you know as you know our conversation has has indicated, I think that as people who have had positive experiences with poetry, um, we are able to engage in those emotional experiences when reading a poem. Yes. I think that. And that that is is a lot of kind of the heart of poetry, you know, in, a, in at least for me, in the experiences that I have with it, is that emotional engagement. And I think that if you present a 14-year-old, you know, with Keats, <laughs> you know, they're going to completely miss that 
elements of poetry and why it's something that they should want to engage in. And, you know, I can't say for sure what our, like here in Seattle, what our like middle and high school students are reading in their, you know, ELA classes because I teach early childhood. Right. But, you know, if I were, and, and the problem is that there are textbooks that are dictated Right. That teachers have to use. Yes. So I, you know, I look at the the student population of of my school in particular, which is heavily immigrants, um, heavily children of color, uh, heavily children living in poverty. And you know, if I'm looking at poetry lesson plans, you know, I would want to be showing them Warson Shire. Mm-hmm. You know, more so than. Again, I'm just going to pick on C.S. Eliot. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, you know, I I would want to give them an experience with poetry that gives them easy access into what poetry can do as a medium for them, mm-hmm. and right. then give them the stuff that is maybe harder to access once they have the basic skills and the desire. But I I feel like people treat poetry, educators treat poetry. Like you have to start chronologically at the beginning rather than at a developmentally appropriate and individually place. appropriate place. Yeah. yeah. Like a kid is going to have an easier time connecting with, you know, a poet who maybe has a cultural background that's more similar to theirs or just comes from a time closer right. to the time of their birth. Right. You know, so rather than saying, okay, we all have to start at the same place, we have to start at the beginning of the, you know, American canon of poetry, like, we don't. We need to start at a place that will engage students in appreciating and desiring a connection with the medium of poetry. Yes, and I think that in teaching it, too, there's a lot of room to not, like, most of the poetry up until probably grad school um, mm-hmm. when I was in classes that dealt with uh, like reading or analyzing poems um, it was so objective and so analytical yeah um, that you know it's like you had to, it's like well what's what's he what's he trying to say what's you know what's this thread what's what's the language doing what's all this stuff and it's like that's it's all important um, but I think more importantly, is to take like a uh, a much more personal and a much more intimate role in in analyzing. It's like, what did it make you feel? Where are the poem? Where are yeah. the parts of this that that made it feel alive or on fire? Or like uh, somehow like pressing on your heart versus points that weren't. And then that way you can get into it's like, well, what's okay? Well, if this if this stanza is is you're like you're really feeling it. It's like it feels like it's on fire for you. Yeah why like why yeah like what's the language doing what's what are what emotions are are being are are being evoked um like how how successful is this poet in crafting this particular image and tying it to the overall theme or the overall um like the movement of of this piece like is this is this a logical place for you to feel this like has the poem been building up to this moment can you see Mm -hmm. can you see like peaks and valleys in this and does that um does you know? Does that all lend itself, especially like if you're viewing poetry as as a means to, um, which not not all poetry does this, and not all poets write for this way. But if you view poetry as a means to like 
as a as a transfer of like as emotional transfer. Um, uh huh. You know, like how successful are they at making you feel something? Um, or you know, is it is it something that you want to feel? Or like, are you there? Are you with the poet as they're as they're working through whatever it is that they're working through? Or is it like, are they getting into a territory that feels really uncomfortable for you? But do is the poem written in such a way that you are at the point where you realize like, oh, this is a really uncomfortable thing for me to be feeling that you're already in it and like you can't get out of it or yeah. the end on this moment and you're left with this like, oh, that's what this poem was about. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to reread yeah. this again. Yeah. And I think that that by taking that really highly clinical analytical approach straight off the bat. Like we're denying students of the opportunity to experience poetry in that way. Yes. And I think that there's certainly a place for, you know, really heavy analysis and really, um, you know, close readings of, of poetry for sure. Mm -hmm. Especially if, you know, you're talking to students who want to create their own poetry and right. need to explore and understand how poetry is created. But, you know, I, I think that when we're looking at middle and high school students, especially where, yeah, maybe they'll want to be poets. Maybe they already do want to be poets. But I think that if you're looking at sort of universal design for learning and you're looking at engaging the, the greatest number of students, those you've already got those students. Right. You know, you've already got the ones who want to be poets to to strip poetry of or just to, to deprive students of the opportunity to engage emotionally before they have to engage clinically with a poem is not in service of the goal of having students appreciate poetry as anything but a task that they have to finish yes I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I actually, I, um, for a long time, I didn't, I would not revise my poems. Um, yeah. I would do a whole lot of like in process editing and revising. Um, but once a poem was written, I would not touch it, uh, for various, a lot of reasons. Um, two of which were, um, back when I was a Christian and I was writing very, Christian themed poems. Uh, I viewed the poems that I that I wrote as like di directly inspired by God. Um, mm -hmm. So when I'm done, it's like you know I didn't want to touch it because I felt like it was you know like he was writing through me and all that. Yeah, jazz. like this, this is how this poem arrived. This is how it should stay. Yes. Um, yeah. But as that sort of slothed off, it, there's still that idea of like revision was always presented. Uh, I don't know if it was always presented this this way to me or if this was just sort of the how I came to view it like my own interpretation of to of viewing revision uh, after it had been presented to me in the ways that it had been whatever mm -hmm. um, that revision was a very clinical almost like like diagnostic process that you you look at a poem you see what's wrong with it and then you fix it Right. Um, and it took me until really like my intro uh, poetry workshop in grad, in, in grad school. 
I read an article written about Rita Dove where the entire article is essentially like her process of revising a particular poem. And oh. I realized that I'll see if I can, I have it bookmarked somewhere. I'll see if I can, um, spelled that whatever um <laughs> but reading that article made me or gave me the realization that uh revision is actually a much more intuitive and intimate and quiet process that like mm -hmm. you 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 come to the poem and you try to get out of your way enough to see where the poem wants to go and then you do what you can to get that poem to where it wants to go. Because um, I, like, up until this point, if there was a line in a poem that was, like, it was a great fucking line, but it didn't fit with the poem, I would just, like, delete, wholeheartedly just delete it. Um, oh. And, you know, I realized, like, oh, shit, I don't have to do that. Like, this is a great fucking line, but it <laughs> brings, the, like, it veers the poem off in the direction that I don't want it to go, so I'm just going to, like take like cut this poem cut this line from this poem and go paste it somewhere and do something with it um later and then uh -huh. you know deal with the poem as it is after that and see you know like because there is uh, when i was writing my thesis there was a poem that i was writing that while i was revising it i realized that it was actually two poems um and that oh. i was i was trying to write essentially two poems and put them into into one and i was like oh this is why this poem is not working and why I was, you know, like people were giving me a lot of conflicting, uh, responses to it. So essentially like I cut it in half. I wrote one of the, one of the poems, which wound up in my thesis. And then the other poem, like the ideas of are just in a, in a folder somewhere. Um, but you know, like that's, I don't think that I would have arrived at that point had, had I not, been as close to my writing and viewing yeah. it as like, you know, sitting with it for a while and just trying to listen to it and just trying to like see, you know, like being less of a, of a doctor and trying to diagnose and then fix what the issue is and more of like a compatriot mm -hmm. or more of a, um, Oh, I don't know. Like support staff that, you know, listen to where it wants to go and then do what I can to help get it to where it wants to go. Um, yeah, yeah. Cause I like when I, before I had this revelation or this, this realization, um, the, the act of revision always felt very counter to like the initial spark or the initial inspiration to the piece that, and somehow viewing it as like, oh, these things are wrong with it, that you were like, you were, um, Oh, I don't know. Like defiling the the act of incept, like its act of inception, or its um, yeah. And then afterwards, when I I've arrived at the way that I revise now, um, I feel like it's it's much more working in conjunction with the the initial spark of inspiration to the piece. That's like it wanted to be this thing, and in the act of writing it, you might you know like there's other shit that comes out potentially with it because the door is open and there's some stuff coming out and it's like your responsibility to look at it and like, is this, is this really working in this particular, in this particular poem? Right. Not, not working you, overall. But. Would you say that it's like acknowledgement of the craft alongside the art? Yes. Although I think, 
for me, it's like the craft aspects of the of the of my poems are much uh, are not things that I consciously think about when I'm mm-hmm. revising. Because um, usually, like most of the the crafty elements of like like the assonance or you know like the rhythms of things or like grouping words together or like the creation of a line, kind of just happens intuitively. Um, and then uh-huh. there'll be a lot of times that like I'll be in my writing group and somebody will call my attention to a line that that works in a way that's that there's like I love this because it draws on this and it's connected to all these other things and I'm like oh cool well I'm like, yeah. I'm glad that I kind of like somewhere knew that in the back of my head when I was writing it um, but <laughs> for me for me it's it's more along the lines of um, I don't know. I, cause there's, I think in probably in, in one of the, the further processes of revision, um, the craft would come up, you know, it's like how it looks on the page yeah. or do, are the lines breaking uh-huh. where they need to break? You know, is it, is this the proper format for the poem? Um, because usually, like, first couple of rounds of revision are looking at a poem and being like, does all of it fit? Is all of it on fire? Does, all, does it all need to be here? Um, or, like, you know, is it all, is all of these, are all the parts of this poem sh- as strong as the other parts of this poem? And if they're not, then it's, you know, going in and tweaking or, like, cutting stuff if, it, if it's just too much and it's unnecessary or... Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't... A lot. My process is is craft does not feature consciously in, in my in my writing process very often. Huh. Um, to e- to either the detriment or the benefit of my of my writing, I'm not sure. But um, most, I feel like most of that stuff is is a much more internal, like intuitive for me. That it just I I don't know if it's just because I'm in I've been writing for such a long time that it just kind of yeah. it just happens. Um, but yeah, it's just like, very internalized. Yeah, but because like, um, I typically don't follow any sort of rules when I write. Um, I just go for it. So there's mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot that I'm thinking about other than just trying to capture whatever experience in the best way or the the best and most appropriate way that I can. Um, and like I, I tend to lean pretty heavily on like very conversational, largely plain spoken, although hopefully uh, linguistically interesting lines and you know phrasing and stuff. Um, just because like I don't know, there are definitely times that when I write, I'm like, oh, this is this is a little, t- it's a little too much. There's a little, there's too much happening here. I gotta, I gotta, uh-huh. turn, I gotta turn this back a bit. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, for me, for huh. me, it's it's more like the music of the line. It's like the music and the images are really the kind of most important thing to me, and the craft. Yeah. The craft kind of just happen, <laughs> happens. I guess I don't know. Yeah. Huh. So I I have a question for you. This is totally. Uh, not, I mean, it's, it's poetry related, but not really relevant to anything that we've been talking about. Um, okay. and then I might, I might begin closing it down, but, All right. um, when you read, uh, collections of poetry, 
Is there a particular uh-huh. way that you read them? Like, do you go from front to back or back to front? Or do you, like, hint pack? Or do you, like, the first time that you read it, you go in order and then all the subsequent times you kind of just pop your way through? Or does it does it matter uh, about... Is it is it uh, specific to, like, the poet or the collection? Um, um, so I, when I read collections of poetry, I generally tackle it sort of the same way that I do when I listen to a new album and like I figure that the author has uh, designed oh yeah no I just uh, that's I'm I'm of, of a similar I believe uh, school of thought on this okay yeah so I figure that the author has put the poems in the order that they're <laughs> in for a reason okay and that like the overall experience is probably like if I want to experience it in the way that the author intended and sort of curated, mm-hmm. um, that I should read from front to back. Okay. Um, in subsequent readings, I generally go back to particular pieces that struck me um, or that I think I, I have more to unpack. And I'm assuming um, that you do a similar thing with albums, right? You listen to it. A- yeah like all the way through once and then on subsequent listens it would be like oh i really like this song or these like yeah, this group yeah. of songs yeah exactly like it'll be this <clears throat> song 500 times in a row you know <laughs> um yeah i i always try to honor the the curation of a collection okay cuz i figure that it's probably got a purpose to it Interesting. Okay, i i tend to oops, I tend to do the same thing. <clears throat> Although, um, I've definitely noticed a hold on. To grab some water. It's important to stay hydrated. We've discussed this. Mm-hmm. Especially on the weekends. <clears throat> Self care. Yes, treat yourself <laughs> to a big old glass of water. Um, Treat yourself to something that is literally necessary for human survival. <laughs> um, I've noticed a tendency in myself that if I'm reading a collection of poetry front to back, and it's like I'm not like I'm I'm with it, but I'm not. It's not really super grabbing my attention. I will then jump from reading it back to front. Ah. Oh. Um, or sometimes I'm like I'll read it front to back, and then I will read it like reverse directly afterwards because I've it's been my experience that I can see I can more easily see and more readily see uh like the the theming or the the conceit behind grouping the poems and the or ordering the poems in the way that they're ordered if I'm reading it backwards okay I don't know why it's just it's it's much more apparent to me um I don't. I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact that I tend to spoil things uh, for myself, like you know, the plots of books or movies or whatever. Um, maybe it's just like if I know where it ends, it's easier for me to see how they get there as opposed to reading it front to back and not real like being along for the ride, but not really. Like it would take a second or third reading to really kind of see the organization or see the themes that are happening because I don't know where it ends or where it's where it's actually going uh-huh but yeah well i think that you know 
in reading it front to back, there can sometimes you can sometimes get sort of swept up in the experience of it again in that sort of more linear way where back to front you know you might be experiencing the manifestation of the theme a little bit more clearly in each poem yeah um yeah and and be able to kind of see them first as pieces and then second as part of a collection yeah yeah i think i think in reading it front to back I see them more as like individual poems that are that are together it takes me more of a more of a sense to see see them as like not see the poems as not as as parts like individual poems that are grouped together but as as an actual book whereas if I'm reading them backwards I get much more of the sense of like oh this is a collection of poetry as opposed to like the individual things yeah that makes sense Anyway, um, we have been chatting for just over two hours, um, so I'm I'm I think I'm gonna I'm gonna begin winding this down uh, just because. Gonna call it. Yeah, I have some I have some <laughs> stuff I got to do this evening, um, and I'm sure that you have some things that you would like to do with your afternoon. Um, so as is traditional, I have two questions for you. All right. Uh, well, not traditional for you, but traditional in for the podcast. Um, <laughs> now, this is always how we end conversations. Yeah, this is, all, I always ask you these two things whenever we get to this topic. <laughs> um, so the first question is, if you have the vocabulary, um, what is your internal landscape? Describe it. If you can describe it, what would you say your internal landscape is? And I can, um, I can give you some examples if you if you're unsure how to how to tackle this this question. Yeah, give me one example. Okay, um, I'll give you two. Okay. Um, so the I had the the wonderful fortune to talk to the the head of my the head of the MFA program that I went to um, earlier in the year, and when I asked her this, she described her internal landscape as the. Uh, sky uh, let's say somewhere in the southwest so you have like you have a skyscape with like kind of the the plateaus and the the kind of like sand mountains sand colored mountains um but you know just like big old southwest sky with a cloud in the shape of a dog and a bird flying through okay uh so that was hers uh mine for those listeners who have been with me for a while, you, I'm sure, know uh, word for word what I'm about to say. <laughs> um, but mine is like Badlands-style uh, Great Plains prairie uh, with, you know, a handful of scrub trees, um, but essentially just like big old open nothing landscape, big old open nothing sky, Um and sometimes I am the lands- I am the landscape. Um, sometimes I am walking through the landscape, and sometimes I am watching myself wander through the landscape. And there's like there's weather that happens on there. It's some it's sometimes night. Um, there is occasionally a uh, like a stump in a fire pit. And also occasionally a, a very spartanly furnished room 
that just like those two things just kind of appear randomly in the different locations mm. in the landscape. Um, but that's that's me. That's what I feel uh, kicking around on my insides. So for me, I think that my internal landscape is. Um, and it doesn't. It doesn't. Before you before you go, it doesn't necessarily okay. have to be a single thing. It can change. Um, I've mine feels like it's a pretty static. Like that's I think that's kind of what it's always been. Um, but like yours, it, there's definitely there's not like a single answer potentially for you. Well, you know, it's funny because you know when you asked me the question, you said you know if you have the vocabulary for it, and I don't think I did have the visual vocabulary for it until I moved here. Oh. And, yeah, and I think that it has definitely changed, especially in the last couple of years. Um, but I have had the good fortune of experiencing this exact landscape physically several times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's very particularly um, a pine forest Ooh. on the side or are in the midst of a mountain range. And I say that because um, I, I feel like there's something very specific about the, the, the visual of a very heavily forested area that at any moment can open up into uh, a mountain vista. Okay. And um, where you're not on flat land everything is at a grade, mm-hmm. pretty steep grade. And nonetheless, you are in the middle of a forest. I, I deeply, deeply appreciate that. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad I explained it. Okay. So would you, do you feel like, like you are the landscape or do you feel like there are times that you are like in the landscape itself? I think it's definitely the sensation of being in it. Okay. Well, I say that. I, I think that it could really be either one. Okay. Um, but there is, when I think about it, there is definitely the the sense of like being in it on that steep okay. incline and um, having both sort of a, a sheer ish drop in front of me Uh and having the trees around me okay that would break a fall okay huh yeah i think i think potentially one of the reasons that i deeply appreciate this is that it reminds me of um some of my favorite moments in uh kafka on the shore by murakami oh because the the protagonist at one point well, at various points, um, is deposited at a cabin in the middle of, like, a pine forest in the mountains. Um, and goes wandering off into the forest various times, and at one point, like, goes through the forest, and it turns out that it leads him to some other, like, supernatural part of the forest. I don't know, it's... Mm-hmm. It's Murakami, you know. There's always <laughs> weird, weird shit happening with him. Um, but there is definitely a sense of... Like, 
the way that Murakami presents it with Kafka is that like at first there's this sense of like fear and this sense of like the forest doesn't want him to be there and then mm-hmm. he kind of makes friends with the forest or he he under they grow to kind of understand each other so there's this there's this sense of acceptance and yeah like maybe not necessarily peace but at least like stillness um, or some sort of like quietude. Yeah, and I, I think that is what's touched me so much about getting to spend time in the forests here is that there is definitely that sense that you, I think, interpret at first as, like, I'm unwanted here, mm-hmm. like, this is not... But then I, I think I have had the realization that there is a difference between not being catered to and being unwanted. Ah, uh, okay. just because the mountains are not designed to sort of coddle us the same way that cities are since cities are designed exclusively for our comfort that doesn't mean that the mountain doesn't want you there right it just means that you have to meet the mountain halfway yes yeah there's no yeah okay wow yeah yeah okay i was very intimidated by mountains when i first moved here but i have grown to really appreciate just sort of the the sense of like yeah okay you can be here too yeah that's okay I'm not gonna roll out the red carpet for you but yeah sure come on yeah I th- I think that 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 level of so I in Vermont I ex- I think I experienced I a couple of my poems I think hovered around this idea but I don't know if I ever came out and said it but the whole like like the mm-hmm. the concept of them being unaccommodating um, yeah that you know like like you can be here, but we're not gonna do anything to make it like like easy. Like we're not we're not gonna bend. We're not gonna compromise anything. It's like you're you're the one that's gonna have to bend. That's gonna have to fit, um, like fit the spaces that are here. Right, right. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and the last question that I have is: uh, Do you have any questions for me? Or I have a question for me of on any anything could be sky's the limit whatever whatever you want to potentially talk about or ask. Um, I I think that if I had a question for you, I would like to hear your thoughts on um. So. To preface this, like the poetry that I've really been enjoying lately has been like very heavily activist. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the conversations that we've had today about the very like the the more nonlinear, more emotional sort of facets of poetry, like what you think, um, like what are your thoughts about? how most of the poetry that I've certainly heard about outside of poetic circles and in the mainstream has been very heavily political and very heavily activist. Like, do you think, like, what are, what are your thoughts about that facet of poetry that's, I wouldn't say arising, but becoming sort of the main face of poetry for <clears throat> lay people? Um... I definitely think that there is a, um, like a, a necessity for poetry like that. Um, 
and I've, mm-hmm. I've read some memoirs and I've, I've read some, some articles about um, poets in other countries that it seems more often than not the like poets that are in other countries are almost synonymous to like activists or protests protesters uh-huh. <coughs> that there's some sort of like um, almost inevitability that if you're a poet you're going to be like on the front lines um, and I feel like in the United States uh more often than not, like the pursuit of poetry is sort of like a very academic uh, pursuit, or it's it's presented in such a it, like the through the trappings of, of academia. So, you know, it's like most mm-hmm. most poets that are out there are also teachers. They're working within either university systems or at schools and stuff. Um, right. Which, you know, in in one respect is an, is very important because like they are they're reaching out to the next generations of of writers but in another respect you know it's like i would say more often than not like tenured professors are probably within the middle class Um, yeah and there are certain oh i don't know conventions or certain um i don't know it's like you're just you're you're part of the middle class for for better or worse yeah, like that's the context from which most of the, yes, you know, most professional poetry, I guess, is is arising. Yes, and I so in in that respect, I think that it is it's great that there are, um, that there are like poet activists, um, out there that it's like that that's that that like activist poetry or or social justice poetry or um, like poetry on the front lines that sort of stuff is. Um, is the first exposure that that a lot of young people have with poetry because it's so it's so far removed from a lot of the poet like most of the canon, like the, yeah. the Western canon of poetry, which is great. Um, but I think within that there are um, there are also considerations that you know like with with political poetry I think that it's. It's a lot, maybe not tougher, but there's, it's, it's, I don't want to equate it to advertising, but it's, it's similar. It's like, it's, it's poetry with a definite point. Like there's, uh-huh. there's a particular thing that like people who are, who are writing, um, types of poems like that probably want you to feel, um, right. Or maybe not necessarily feel, but like there's a place that they want you to arrive, um, and that, you know, again, it's not necessarily a, like a good or a bad thing. Um, in some, you know, some cases it's probably really, really good because you, you're the poets forcing people who probably don't have that part of like that perspective or have never had that experience to share in that experience. Right. Um, so, but like I, um. I went to go see the uh, Bread and Puppet Theater a couple times when I was in Vermont, which is a, a, a pretty well-known, um, like, essentially, like, communist, like, probably either pseudo or fairly anarchist um, uh-huh. theater troupe. Um, and on the way back from one of the performances, I was, I was talking with one of the other residents about, you know, like, activist performances and stuff like that. And she, she was bringing up some, I think... 
um, some pretty legitimate critiques of like what's what's the point like is is that is that sort of art like art in protest or art in as activist like as, mm-hmm. as activism is like is that enough or like is that is that the point because um, one of, part of the performance um, was dedicated to the uh, the refugees that have lost their lives crossing the Mediterranean mm-hmm. um, and they like it was a, it was a pretty emotional moment but they had a like a big long sign thing that they pulled around that said we're all in the same boat and then they, they marched out of the barn um, which is a great sentiment but is not there's not like the the I think the proper nuance to it. Um, yeah, yeah. So in in that respect, and so and part of her part of her point was like, are these are these people actually actively in these struggles? Um, because like if you, I, I like what's what's more impactful or what would do more? It's like if you had a bunch of um, you know mostly white people living in a commune in Vermont. Um, you know, who are, are doing like a short five minute piece about, um, the refugees that have, that have drowned in the Mediterranean. Is that more impactful or would it, you know, or having someone who survived that trip, um, write about their own experience, you know, like, is it maybe not necessarily appropriation, but like what position, like, are you, cause I think for her, she was, it still felt like, this troop, even for the trappings of like, you know, communist and anarchist, like they're still writing kind of from a, a place of privilege. Um, yeah, like, un, sure. like potentially unacknowledged privilege that, you know, like they are in a, that they have certain protections and they're in a place that they can do this. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I think, I think that there's a difference between like activists who are also artists versus like artists whose activism is their art. Um, okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I like I'm not I'm not hundred percent certain like or I'm I'm not super clear on like what that distinction necessarily means, but I think that it is it's definitely there. And I feel like I feel like the the more impactful art or the more effective art comes out of people who have who have had the experiences that they are writing about. Yeah. Um, so like if you if you are an activist, if you are doing these things, if you're if you are living like if your life is a, is about this and you are drawing from your personal experiences of of having like been in a protest or been, you know, like 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 uh harassed or threatened by police or you know any anything like that um i think that that would that that would be more of like more more effective of a piece of art if it was written written out of that experience than necessarily someone who who's maybe not had that experience but chooses to protest something just through their art i don't i don't i don't know yeah no that makes sense yeah thank you um, and then, like, I've actually kind of struggled a little bit with this, that um, I feel like my my poetry doesn't really draw to anything necessarily, like, bigger. Or, like, it, there's no, 
Um, like I, I have a, um, a, like a trans. I, well, actually, no. I have two. I have two trans friends that that write that are writing from like a trans experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like that's and it's so. I think it's it's so important for them as writers to have their stuff out there and read. Um, again, to to kind of create that sort of like that empathy or create that you know, like this is my experience. These are the things that I that I felt that are probably you know maybe a little bit different as as far as the trappings and what you've experienced. But you know, at the core, it's like there's this there's this fear, there's this uncertainty, there's this anxiety that I'm sure that you have felt about you know stuff. You know, it's like that that way to to bridge people to understanding of like oh shit where you know you're you're a person i'm a person there's this yeah. inherent connection or there's this inherent tether within that um but like i don't i don't feel like there's a lot of places that i'm writing from that haven't already been written about th- like hundreds of times if that you know if not more oh. before um because i am white um, I am ostensibly like, I mean, I, at least I present as a white cis dude. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm a gender, but like none of my poems really deal, have explored like what that means for me, even though I think, I think there are aspects of, of like the agenderness potentially in, in how I see certain things or how it's revealed in the poems, but none of them are explicitly like, this is a poem about me not, you know, feeling like, like I have a gender. Um, right, right. So I've I've struggled, especially recently, I've struggled with the idea of like, is what I'm writing enough? Like is there mm-hmm. is there some place that I can that I can push it that feels authentic that is not just like I'm pushing this just to try to push it? Um or you know, just like writing something that like I'm just gonna write something to, to try to make somebody feel smallly sad because I think that that's you know, people need to feel this sometimes. Or yeah. like to write something, write something that that holds that emotion. So if someone needs to feel that, they can seek out this particular poem and let like let that emotion into the space that's that's crafted for that. Um, but yeah, like I've I've thought about like if my if my poetry should be speaking to something bigger or something more or should have more um, like social consciousness in it. But, like, I'm currently not involved in, like, personally in a lot of, like, the struggles that are that are happening. Um, yeah. So I'm, like, I, like, in trying to keep my own, uh, I guess, my own authenticity or my own yeah. truthfulness to experience, you know, it's, like, if I'm drawing from my own experience, like, this is kind of what I have, um, which, you know, it's, like, should I, should I go seek out these other experiences? Just... You know, and that that leads me to kind of attention. It's like, should I go seek out these other experiences just for the sake of having them, so I can write about them, or right? You know, right? Like, I feel like it really should be. It's like I should seek out these experiences or do these things because the intent is like I I need to help out in this way or I need to be plugged in to this particular thing. Um, yeah, well, and you know, I think that coming at that from pretty much any angle is not a negative. You know, like if if it is. The idea that, you know, maybe you should be writing something that has more of 
a bent towards, you know, I don't want to say current events, but, you know, like um, social justice and things like that. If thinking about that is what leads you to pursue those experiences, you know, as long as you go into those experiences with an open heart and an open mind and, you know, are not as you are not from the fact that you're worried about it, um, <laughs> you know, not just going in so that it's like, I can write a poem about this. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that as long as you go in with good intentions, like ultimately it doesn't really matter what made you think about pursuing those experiences in the first place. Yeah. Um, and then if there is art to be made from them, then you have right. those experiences. And if there's not, then you have those experiences. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, like I've been, I've been thinking about, um, like the whole idea of if I don't have anything to add to a particular conversation, um, like, is it best if I just don't say anything in a particular conversation <laughs> or is it like, should I do try to do something? And I like I've I've realized that I've kind of been doing this, maybe not not unintentionally, but not necessarily intentionally with um, the the people that I've been publishing with my press. Um, that you know, it's like it's a lot of. Um, I mean, it's been like one one queer identifying guy. Um, two women, I have another woman and then like a, a Canadian Asian on tap. Um, like two of my collections I've published and I'm, you know, like I'm not hetero. I'm not a, you know, hetero, a white dude. Um, I mean, I am, I am white, but I'm not a dude. Um, right. Right. So, you know, like, is it, would it, is it enough to just like be quiet so that I don't detract or I don't add any, any, you know, any sort of noise to the conversation or like, should I seek more to tell, allow other people who have legitimate voices in a, in a given conversation to like whatever space that, that I occupy to like try to get them, like do what I can to, to get them into that space so that, you know, they have an opportunity to speak to people. Yeah. Like the amplification of those voices is I think probably the, the best service that you can provide with the resources that you have and the access that you have is, you know, yeah, providing that amplification and the access to other people who may not have that access. And then, you know, if you feel at some point that there is work in you that relates to, you know, your own experiences outside of that you know, white cis hetero male, uh, sort of sphere, yeah. then, you know, then that's, that's, that's the time for you. But, you know, until then, you know, I think that in terms of sort of contributing to the greater good, that, you know, the amplification and the, offer of access to um, other authors who may not have that access is, you know, plenty. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> well, I feel like that's a good, probably a good place to stop. Um, uh, so, be thinking, of, I, I typically leave my sign-off to my guests. Um, so be thinking about that. So I, I have a couple of things to say um, before, before officially ending this episode. Uh, the first of which is thank you so much uh, for everyone who has listened, who has listened and is continues to listen and just potentially maybe just started listening on this episode. Um, it's kind of uh, bewildering to, to me that uh, so poetry is uh, legitimately an international. I have an international audience. Um, I was looking at uh, the the stats on SoundCloud a couple of days ago. Um, and like people are listening all over the place around the world, which is just amazing. And like, thank you so much. Um, there might be some, some things in the works. Ugh, almost knocked over my notebook. Um, uh, possibly, uh, I've been thinking about potentially starting a, a Patreon for the podcast and my press um, potentially my music as well. I don't know if they're all going to be part of the same like group or if it's going to be separate things. I don't know, but that, that'll be, um, I'll keep everyone informed about that. If that happens, um, if anybody wants to, I don't know, kick a little bit of money my way to, su to support things. Um, there will be one more episode in season two. Uh, it will probably be airing the last week of September. Um, it will be featuring a uh, another poet that I met at the Vermont Studio Center, uh, who is wonderful. Um, I'm not going to give I'm not going to spoil anybody who it is yet. Uh, I'll, I'll throw all that information out um, when it's when it's pertinent. Uh, but that will be the end of season two, and then I will probably start right in in season three uh, in October. Uh, so expect a different. Um, I don't know, like icon, a little graphic thing for season three. I don't know what that will be yet. Um, I don't know if anybody has any. I've called. I've done a call for these before. And nobody has responded, but you know, I'll continue to do them. Uh, if anybody has any suggestions of like things that they think could make this better, uh, if you have any comments, you have any questions, feel free to hit me up. Uh, my contact information should be on. The SoundCloud page. Um, I know for sure you can message me on SoundCloud, and I think that my email address might be up there too. But if it's not, I'll 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 add it. Uh, but reach out. I would love to hear from my international people. Um, I know I've I know that I've lost track of some of the uh, the solo things that I've been doing, like reading uh, poems from poets that are you know not usually represented in the in the Western canon. I will continue to do that. Um, I just, because I was on hiatus, I wanted to, to give y'all some quality interviews with people. Um, but I will get back to that. Um, there might be a little more stuff about haiku than I want to talk about. I don't know. We'll see. Um, yeah, but we should be getting back into a, a, this kind of regular uh, one guest, one solo thing per month. Um, if I do a Patreon, I will come up with some extra thing to add for people who, who donate um, or who decide to be patrons. Uh, but yeah, I think that that might be it. Uh, so Ruth, if you have, if you have a good sign off or just a sign off, um, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Good, good might be. <laughs> be a lot. Um, no, I just want to, you know, thank you for for giving me the opportunity to have this really interesting conversation with you. And just as an educator, um, I just want to mention how grateful I am to the the community of poets and people who support poetry because I know how important it can be for for me in understanding my kids and in giving the older kids that I work with you know a, a perspective into parts of the world that they wouldn't have access to otherwise so as removed as I am sometimes from poetry <laughs> uh as an educator I'm really glad that that these places exist and that I still have access to them. So thank you so much, Michael. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I I don't know if I've, if I've thanked my guests for being on here on air, but yeah, <laughs> thank you, Ruth. Um, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> this is, so for most of you who know, um, most of the listeners who have been with me for from the very inception of this, uh, one of the main reasons that I started this podcast was just to talk to people about poetry that I've always wanted to talk to about. Um, and Ruth, you have definitely been on my list of people that um, I feel like we probably should have had a conversation like this in undergrad, and I don't know if we ever did. Yeah, um, probably so. <laughs> but I'm, I don't know, maybe, maybe it needed to not happen then and happen now after... I don't know. At least I became a little more articulate about poetry and my thoughts and my feelings on it. Um, but yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much for carving out like two and a half hours of your Sunday uh, <laughs> to sit and talk. Um, it's also, I mentioned this, the the first episode that I did with a recording of someone who was not physically in the same room as me, but it's, it's really astounding that like, that we can do this. That I'm talking yeah. to you over the internet, that I'm recording it, and that I will be putting it up again on the internet for other people all over the fucking world to listen to. It's just, it's astounding to me that this, that I, I have the opportunity and the yeah. ability to do this. Yeah, um, the connectivity of it is pretty mind-boggling. Yes. I think, yeah, I was going to say it's like, it's, it's really, it's encouraging and it's terrifying. Um, yeah. And it's... It will be interesting to see which which side of the of that scale is the one that ends up like like weighing out as 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 the years progress. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I don't know. Maybe maybe we, in a cut like fifty years, I'll be beaming this shit directly into people's minds. I don't know. Uh. <laughs> um. But yeah. So thanks all around. Um, and until next time.